welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast for September the 21st, 2018. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and each week we feature interviews across the dairy industry. We have a lot to get through this week in a mixed bag in store, and as there's no single topic, I suppose I could tie it all together and say we have some stories that are all very different dairy flavours. For future shows, if you're interested in being featured or know someone we should feature, just drop us an email by visiting www.dairyreporter.com. On this week's show, we'll hear from Oliver Knight, LNG specialist at Caller, a company helping a cheese producer in the UK to switch to liquefied natural gas for its energy source. Then it's over to the US state of Iowa to talk to Kevin Hogendorn about a new free smartphone app, Zisk, which has been launched to help dairy farmers. And in our last feature, we'll head to Denmark to speak with Malena Sveistrup, Senior Application Scientist at DuPont Nutrition and Health, about their Holdback YM Protective Cultures, which were launched 20 years ago. And we'll finish with our regular weekly update on the dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. First on the show this week, Dairy Partners in Wales is set to become the first cheese manufacturer in the UK to be fuelled by LNG or liquefied natural gas. It's estimated the company can cut its energy costs by 29% a year by switching from light fuel oil to LNG. And we caught up with Oliver Knight, LNG specialist at Caller, the company helping the dairy to make the switch, to talk about the benefits for dairy companies switching to LNG. Well, we've got uh, an industry first in terms of supplying liquefied natural gas um, to a dairy producer that's been in operation um, throughout this year. Um, I mean, Cal is well known for obviously the cylinders, the um, domestic and commercial bulk, but we do have um, an industrial presence. Is this something that dairies should be considering? Absolutely. Um, so the medium combustion plant directive, which is um, what it's for in the UK now, it's bought in uh, December of uh, last year, uh, that pretty much rules out the use of heavy fuel oil for plants that are between 1 megawatt and 50 megawatt capacity. And the idea is that, you know, the government's looking to reduce the number of emissions and these, this regulation and this law has come in to pretty much rule out the, the dirtier of oils. And I'd say anyone who's not connected to gas mains, cheese producers, generally some of them are off-grid in nature. You know, they're consuming kind of kerosene, light fuel oils perhaps, even heavy fuel oils as well. Um, you know, they're considering other options to supply themselves with energy. Now, that could be with biomass, it could be with solar, it could be with waste-derived fuels, uh, but also in the mix are um, propane and liquefied natural gas. You know, consult with them to let them know that, you know, did you know that this is a viable option where we can have your fuel oil and you need to do something, and by the way, we can likely save you money and reduce your carbon emissions at the same time. You know, we also have a, a bio a bio versions of our products as well, certainly bio-LPG, We've got commercial access to um, that is an industry first as well so we can offer some very substantial carbon savings um, compared to using oil um, at a lower cost so that's what we're promoting in the marketplace we've done a, a, um, a case study with dairy partners um, so we're looking to use this and promote it amongst the dairy industry to um, you know, raise awareness and you know if clients start considering their energy choices then you know we'd love to hear from them share some 
high-level details, get into discussion with how we might be able to support them in their, you know, in their goals to save energy, reduce spend on energy, and you know, generally become greener. Human nature being what it is, people are often resistant to change. How how are you countering that? So, as a Cal is a pretty reputable brand, well known. Um, and we, we're letting them know that it's only for liquefied natural gas. We've got a number of these installations across England, Scotland, and Wales, which is um, unique to Cal. Nobody else can say that. We've also, uh, part of our parent company, we've got about, I don't know, 80 of these types of installations across the continent as well. So it's a very well-established technology that we're replicating for heavy end users of oil. And if where L energy might not be appropriate for them, perhaps their usage isn't high enough, then you know we're pretty well armed to then offer them a propane alternative or even a biopropane alternative. So as far as dairy companies are concerned, the win for them is um, is not just environmental; it's also cost. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, two most important things for a dairy producer: um, one is having energy and two is having water and if you've got an oil boiler on site there's quite often maintenance issues there's quite often ground contamination issues affecting their water courses so with liquefied gases those problems go away in the event there is a small spillage um, unlikely as it is ground contamination issues are almost non-existent when it comes to maintenance of, of the boilers as well as you can you get you can use modern burners that go in the in the boilers. That saves yourself probably five percent on energy in the first place. Then you're saving on the cost of energy in itself, and then you're also reducing all the noxes and particulates and carbon dioxide um, emissions as well, quite substantially as well. I could add. I suppose one question would always be how companies are going to pay for this, whether it's going to be too expensive for them. It depends on the cash flow of the company. If they have money available for such a project, then great. We ask them to um, prepare the civil works for us. If cash flow is a bit tight, well, we can assume those costs on behalf of the client and amortize that into the gas price itself um, and the benefit there is really the customer has nothing to pay up front um, we have access to all the boiler and burner manufacturers anyway we're quite familiar with them um, we have civil works partners we have chp partners we have battery technology partners so it, it's not just the you know we're not just acting as a fuel supplier we're you know taking sort of quite a consultative role towards supporting our clients to convert across from oil onto these liquid gases so there are examples where you know customers paid nothing um we've gone through um connected them up with the suppliers of the burner technology of the pipe work technology of the um civil works contractors we front those costs on behalf of the customer on an open book basis and roll those into the cost of the gas. And even then, we can still quite often find them savings on their ongoing cost of energy because we've dropped their energy consumption by 5%. Maybe we can bring in some of our energy partners as well to help tighten up their use of energy on site. They're using steam fairly inefficiently. We can help with them using their steam more efficiently. So again, it's sort of a multi-pronged approach. We aim to reduce the amount of money that they spend, reduce the amount of energy that they need, rather, reduce the amount of en um, money that they spend on energy and the benefits that um, these liquid gases bring as well. So, totally convincing argument for um, certainly dairy producers, if they are off-grid, if they are on something like heavy fuel oil, they 
may or may not have known that they need to do something with regards to the bleaching combustion plant directive. And um, yeah, we've got viable solutions. The size of the plant really doesn't matter. You can you can tailor something depending on the size. Absolutely. So if it's a relatively small producer, um, I suggest we would offer them something along the lines of propane, and that can go from anything from bottled gas, where they might have I don't know 50 or 100 kilos of gas on site, to anyone's consuming 250 tons. 2,000 tonnes, 5,000 tonnes of oil. Um, we've got a range of options that could work. Once they have a consumption probably over 1,000 tonnes per year of oil, that's when liquefied natural gas comes into its own. Um, you know, The price of propane is quite closely linked to that of oil. So when oil prices rise, as they have been doing, the price of propane sort of tracks with it, but normally a little bit low, so there are some savings to be made. Once you are into like a 1,000 tonne or more of, of um, oil, moving on to the liquefied natural gas gets you onto a different wholesale price altogether. Nine times out of ten, it's uh, we need to reduce our spend on energy. You know, um, manufacturing has a hard enough time. Dairy has probably a harder time than most. Um, the government does have some incentives for uh, dairy producers to offset, for example, um, climate change levy. That all helps, but really they're looking to save money. Anyone with a smartphone, which is pretty much everyone these days, knows there are lots of apps launched daily, but those for the dairy industry are few and far between. However, there is a new app, Zisk, developed in Iowa, and one of the team that came up with the app to help dairy farmers with management, nutrition and financial decisions is Kevin Hogendorn. So milk in the U.S. Uh, before 1996 was not a publicly traded commodity. So it, it was the pricing was more set by the government based on supply and demand. And in 1996, they started trading Class Three milk on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And after that, of course, you started getting more players in the market, and the milk price started to fluctuate. And then, as everyone knows, in the last 10 years, with the economy turning worldwide due to the communications like the internet, the price of milk started fluctuating much more. So, so we're seeing higher highs and lower lows, and it's moving much more quickly. At the same time, uh, the price of grains started moving up and down uh, much more dramatically uh, with us being in a worldwide market. And what I started noticing on my dairy clients is they couldn't predict their cash flow. So the market's quite unpredictable. For example, who could have predicted that Trump would put tariffs on China? Um, and so that's that's had a short term. We hope we hope it's short term negative effect on our markets because we were exporting a significant amount of milk and grains to China. So there's a, the market has become quite unpredictable. Prior to 1996, the price of milk only fluctuated maybe one to two dollars per hundred weight. After 1996, you know we're seeing ten to twelve dollar fluctuations. On, on 100 weight of milk. So so we went from $1 to $2 of milk price fluctuation to $10 to $12 of milk price fluctuation, and without a great way to predict that. The farmers kind of knew all the time within a dollar or two what their milk price would be, so <clears throat> it was fairly easy to plan. Now what we see is you don't know if the milk price is going to be $19 or $12, and 
being as farmers don't have a, a dairy farmers, not speaking, being as they don't have a history of working with the market, it was it became very difficult for them to plan on their farms. So I've seen dairy farms struggle financially. I've seen the banks come in and start putting pressure on the dairy farms because their debts get too high. I've seen dairy farms go out of business. So what, what this is essentially requiring is a dairy farmer to, in essence, still be a farmer, but to start being a business person. And that's a bit of a transition because the markets can be confusing. They can be scary. They can be difficult to understand. What I saw was we went through a period of really low milk prices in 2008, 2009, and there had been opportunity prior to that to contract higher milk prices. Almost no one took those prices. So we went through a period of really low milk price, scared everyone really badly. They lost a lot of money. Suddenly the next year, a lot of dairymen contracted their milk. And of course, what comes after low prices is high prices. So a lot of dairymen contracted their milk too low at that time, and the milk price went higher. So they're upset at themselves for doing that. So they kind of just stopped contracting altogether. What I did with some of my best clients that I work the most closely with is I started working off of their accountants' figures, and we started doing financial projections out 12 months into the future. And, you know, based on their accounting figures, we could get quite accurate representation of what was going to happen in the next 12 months. And we could also project their income because we knew how much milk they were producing and we could feed in numbers from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So we can pretty closely project their income for 12 months. We knew what their feed would cost because, again, you can input feed cost numbers from the Mercantile Exchange. And we would project out for 12 months and then watch the markets. Is it a good idea to contract feed or milk at this point or not? And um, it just made, a, made the farmers much more aware of what was going on in the markets. It provides a lot more comfort to the lender, the bank, when they know that the business is watching their financial portfolios this closely. So that's kind of the history behind the app. It started with the, the end in mind that instead of having a, a perfect accounting system, what I needed to build was a really good indicator. So something that's really simple, but, but gives the, the dairy person a really good indication of what does the next year look like financially. I can fairly accurately predict the profitability of a dairy going forward 12 months based on what the markets are telling me. And, and of course, again, this isn't, the, this isn't an accounting system. It's, it's not going to tell someone to the dollar what their dairy is going to make, but it's a very good indicator. And a dairyman can quickly enter the number of cows they're milking, the amount of milk pr production they're getting, also what type of bonuses they're getting on their milk, and in an instant can look at the next 12 months and say, what do they look like for my farm? And the app updates every 10 minutes. The second thing I did is I built in contracts into the program. So let's say a dairy person would contract 200 tons of feed each month for the next 12 months. So that price is set. They can then go enter that price into the app, and it will first calculate their profitability based off of their contracted feeds. Any feeds they would use above that, it goes back to the market. So I did that to increase the accuracy as the dairyman would start to uh, contract feed and different things like that. It, it keeps the software accurate. The other thing I built into the app, and this is purely just because of how busy everyone is, I built alerts in. So a dairy person can set unlimited number of custom alerts. 
I have a lot of ideas of uh, more things I can build into the app. Um, of course, they, they all cost money. So my goal is to get the app out, get dairy people using it. And, and of course, not just dairymen. I, I'd like to have advisors, veterinarians, nutritionists, bankers. I can harvest that feedback and, uh, of course, get new ideas and add more things to the app to make it more accurate, to provide better information and, and things like that. You know, eventually, in order to do to take it to the next level, I'll be looking for some sort of partner in the industry or, or something like that. My intention is, is that the app will always be free. We ask farmers to pay for enough things in, in life and business. So having seen some of the, the pain that they go through, uh, I think the least we can do is, is uh, find ways to provide them with free tools. Elena Sveistrup is Senior Application Scientist at DuPont, a company that introduced holdback YM protective cultures in 1998. However, as we will hear, they are still helping prevent spoilage and are relevant in finding new applications today. Does it still have new applications, even though it's been around for, for such a long time? Yes. Actually, we are developing currently um, new solutions to, uh, you can say, more complex applications, so not just yogurts and direct fermentations, but using this protective culture kind of as an ingredient when you're fermenting it. So the entire idea is basically when you have a, a, a protective culture, what you want to do is you want to make a yogurt. So you would take um, milk and the starter culture, and together with the starter culture, you would be using your protective culture and leave that to ferment like you would make a normal yogurt. But you would have then a fermented milk product that contains the protective culture that has been able to grow throughout the fermentation time. And you're actually using that as an ingredient in more complex systems. So it could be butters and spreads and other types of more complex cheeses, for instance. You can say from the beginning, it was uh, there was nothing on the market uh, than the chemical preservatives. So we've been working together with a lot of customers on on optimizing their process. They really still have a place of use, and this has increased uh, tremendously within the last five years, actually, because of more and more consumers, and thereby also the, the food manufacturers, are asking for a clean label. We're asking for extending shelf life to reach new market areas, uh, extending or maybe maintaining the quality so they know from from when they produce the product until the end of the shelf life that the taste and texture of the product is actually the same. So I think both consumers and thereby retailers is really becoming more and more aware of the food waste. So one parameter is definitely food waste and the other one is the clean label. The, the trends must have changed greatly in those 20 years. Yes. Well, the sustainability is something that we've been discussing for the last three, four years and really has become major focus. So what we've also done is try to actually calculate based on, you can say, the extended shelf life, what impact would that have, for instance, on the CO2 carbon footprint of a product. So I can give you an example from, from a study that we've made with a, together with a customer in, in white cheese where we were able to extend the shelf life from adding nothing to adding the protective cultures and helping also with hygiene and all of these other parameters around the product. 
we were able to extend the shelf life by more than 200%. And that's actually equivalent to, if you take all of white cheese globally and you would apply our protective cultures, that would be the same impact as 400,000 tons of CO2 reduced a year because of the shelf life extension. So we would, and this is a rough estimate, and most likely it would be higher, but we wanted to be very conservative in our guesses. And, and I think the entire idea is to, to be able to, and as a consumer, you want to eat the product you're buying and you, and you feel much better than having to throw out half a beaker of yogurt or trees or whatever and bread and everything, vegetables. So being able to kind of eat the product is a good feeling for the consumers. And, and we've seen we've seen growth in many different areas, as you mentioned, that have um, that have taken off in the, the last, well, even, even the last five years. I mean, first it was Greek yogurt, and now we're seeing... Yeah. As you mentioned, clean label and also the uh, increase in, in vegan products. And these cultures are actually also applicable in, in, in vegan products because you would have the same challenges with, with these and more spoilers in these types of applications, even without milk present. So we've been looking into some of these uh, newer non-dairy dairy, the uh, so wheat, oats, these toys, these types of vegan dairy products is also something that is, is really becoming increasingly interesting for both consumers and food manufacturers. The spoilage organisms that you normally come across in, in a normal dairy may be very different in, in these types of applications. So we've been having to adapt, of course, to provide good protection, but also to understand from the application point of view, how do we optimize and how can we help our customers evaluate in these applications? And sometimes it's not dairies that are looking into these uh, application areas. So it might be that their background is different. So they would have other challenges or questions to be asked than, than the normal dairy. But would there be different challenges in different countries based on um, food preferences and different temperatures and, and those kind of things? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for instance, in, in Denmark, we have five degrees as recommended for our fridges. And in Sweden, you would have eight degrees. And, and three degrees doesn't sound like a lot, but it really makes an impact on, on how well yeast and mold will grow and how fast the product would spoil. Also, the taste preferences are really, really different if you're looking, for, for instance, for the South American market. They like things that are really mild in taste and, and often very sweet. Whereas the Nordic countries like something that is super acid and not sweet. Uh, so there are like uh, physical parameters, but also the spoilage organisms are very different. So if I'm talking to a customer in, in France, for instance, their problems, their spoilage makers would most likely be different to Denmark, to U.S. So here in, in Brabant, where I'm sitting, we're really um, collecting spoilage organisms from all over the world to understand the complexity. And it, it varies a lot even from one dairy company to another or one plant to another. Finally on the show this week, we hear from INTL FC Stone's Liam Fenton with his weekly look at the global dairy markets. Butter has continued to soften this week, down by about €100 Euros on the week to around 4600 level in quarter one. Uh, cream has had a rally off its lows uh, from last week, um, which should have lent some support to butter to uh, just above the 6,000th level. But I think stocks of butter and suppliers of butter are back in the market and just putting prices uh, back under pressure. 
Skimmel powder has also traded lower this week, uh, continue on the selling following the disappointing price achieved in the O'Neill tender. Uh, it appears that uh, those that didn't get a uh, product away in that tender, um, while they might have been long at quite good levels, are back in the market now looking to, to uh, sell that stock. Um, it, all that stock needs to find a home, and basically it looks like in quarter one, skim of powder is trading around the 1600 level in the futures. Thanks, Liam. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tools and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. That's all we have time for this week, so please join us again next week on the Dairy Reporter Dairy Dialogue podcast.